They want to go home. The first thing you'll notice in the bulletin outline there is that we are to move at God's direction alone. If you look at verse 19 and 20, it reads, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. It may be surprising to some to hear that Joseph was still in Egypt. I did a search on a timeline, a Bible timeline on this, and it appears that they have been there about two years. So if they fled when he was about two, then right now he's about four. And we're wondering, or maybe some are wondering, why, why are you still there? The surprise may be, that we're so used to ordering our own lives as we see fit that to take God at his word seems a bit archaic or unnecessary. We reason, I have a good head on my shoulders. I, I, can, I can think and plan and act without being prompted by God's word for every move. So in this case, if Egypt didn't suit us, we might not want to return to Palestine, but there were plenty of other neighboring countries that might suit our fancy better than desert sand. But Joseph had been given a specific instruction by God. Look at verse 13. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod going to search for the child to kill him. Not only go, not only escape to Egypt, but that's going to be your home till you get word from me otherwise. It's kind of like the air raids on London in Hitler's Luftwaffe in World War II. England's Civil Defense Corps had established bomb shelters throughout the city basements of London. So when the German air attacks began, the sirens would wail, warning people, and the Civil Defense Corps, all of them, by the way, volunteers, would hurry people into the shelters with this warning. Stay there until you hear the all-clear signal. By and large, the citizens of London obeyed. By experience, they knew that the streets of London were no place to be roaming around while the German Air Force was dropping bombs on their city. But there were always some, there is always some, who thought they knew best how to survive. They reasoned that such restriction was not in their best interests, and so they would venture out and search for family or friends, or just to go somewhere else that they thought might be safer. Well, some survived, but many did not survive. You see, the shock of the bomb blast themselves, if not a direct hit, was often all that was necessary to end their lives. The Civil Defense Corps knew best, but these adventurers didn't see it that way, and it cost them their lives. Do we do any better when we know 
that the person warning us, the person restricting us, is none other than God himself? I'm not sure we do. We live in a country that promotes and fosters independent spirits. We're told, don't let anyone tell you that you can't do such and such, whatever it is. Our children are taught, you can do this. Just try. Our college youth are taught to be free thinkers. And by free thinkers, it means going against the social norms, going against, yes, even the moral standards. Your parents are a bunch of fuddy-duddies. You need to think for yourself. Make your own rules was the cry of the 60s, my generation we were growing up. Cass Elliott of the group, the Mamas and the Papas, sang, Nobody can tell ya. There's only one song we're singing. They may try and sell ya, because it hangs them up to see someone like you. But you gotta make your own music. You gotta sing your own special song. Make your own kind of music, even if Nobody else sings along. Yeah, that really, <laughs> that sums up the 60s and the hippie generation. The wisdom of the ages has been replaced with, if it feels good, just do it. The only restraint in behavior is your own preferences. What are we seeing today in America? Tax on police, by and large, Look at the history of the police. They're a protecting agency, protecting the innocent against marauding gangs and things like that, especially in our big cities. A person will rob a convenience store because what? They're short on cash. Oh, that's what you need to do if you're short on cash. Just rob a convenience store. What if you have a suitor, a rival suitor that's trying to muscle in on your girlfriend? Well, you... You just kill them. That's what you do. You shoot them. All of this is standard venue for many in our society. And while none of this would be part and parcel to Christian conduct still, what spills over on us is the idea that the decisions of life are left to our own reasoning. Maybe I will go to God for the biggies in life, you know, marriage, family, church. But I ought to be able to determine if I'm going to return to my home in Israel or if I continue to live in Egypt. I ought to be able to determine for myself if I take this job offer in New Jersey, which will net me $10,000 more in salary, or if I stay right here where I'm earning less because... Here's where my church family is, and here's where my family is, and here's where my friends are, and they're all very important to me. But I ought, I, I ought to be able to decide. In the area of Christian liberty, where Paul assures us that we are free in Christ to do certain things, he nonetheless concludes this. Let me read it for you. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. 
even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31 through 33. So Paul's saying, even in Christian liberty, I got rights. I can do X, Y, and Z. But I'm not going to do anything that causes my brothers in Christ to stumble in their faith, or even a Greek, a non-believer, or even a Jew who's another, uh, you know, a follower of another religion. I'm going to watch how I walk and how I live. Solomon's wisdom shines through when he says, Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. Proverbs 16 and verse 3. Paul applied this principle to the family, saying this way, Whatever you do, wherever, whether in word or deed, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. It's working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. That's Colossians 3. 17 and following. So Paul applies it to the family. What? This principle of doing only what is going to bring glory to God. James applies the principle to vocation. Here's what he writes. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. James goes on, why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Now you're planning out, you know, you're planning out your years. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? And he answers his own question. You, says James, are a you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. James 4, 13 through 17. So the principle of doing whatever we do for the glory of God is applied in all of these areas of life. God told Joseph, Escape to Egypt and park there till I tell you, till I give you the all clear signal to return home. Verse 13. Verse 14. So he got up and he took the child and his mother during the night and he left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And also now, in compliance to the angel's instruction, verse 19 states, after Herod's death, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. Herod's dead. Go back to the land of Israel. So that is 
an important thing, that our lives are to be governed by the Word of God, whether we're talking family, vocation, uh, geographical relocation, you know, all of these things. We don't just operate like the people of the world as though we don't have no obligation to God's church or to God himself in, in our decisions of life that we make. Now, we're, gonna, we're moving on in here, so we're going to see some, some uh, kindness and mitigation on God's part. And that's the second point. God takes into account your personal concerns when he issues a command. The broad command to Joseph is this. Leave, leave Egypt and do what? Answer. Go to the land of Israel. Verse 20. So what did Joseph do? Verse 21. He got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. This was complete compliance to the very letter of God's word. Go to the land of Israel. So Joseph went to the land of Israel. Okay, but the land of Israel constitutes a large territory. Should Joseph return to Bethlehem or some other place in Israel? Did he dare question the command of the Lord? Or if not questioning, dare he express some consternation as to just exactly where he was to migrate? Okay, God, you said go back to the land of Israel. Where, where should I go? Do I make that decision? Do you make that decision? You see, there's a problem for Joseph. What's his problem? Verse 22. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, that's Bethlehem's territory, by the way, in place of his father Herod, Joseph was afraid to go there. Who was Archelaus? Well, yeah, he's Herod's son. But what son and what kind of a man was he? Herod had ten wives. Ten. You recall that he had his second wife, Miriam, murdered because he suspected her of treason. His fourth wife was a Samaritan woman named Malthus. And it is she who was the mother of Archelaus. Upon Herod's death, his kingdom was divided up among his sons. And Archelaus was made ethnarch. Ethnarch means a governor. He was made governor of Judea, Samaria, and Idumea. Idumea is to the south of Judea. So it's the land between Judea and Egypt. So he is ruler of those areas. Judea, Samaria to the north, Idumea to the south. Herod Antipas... Another son of Malthus became Tetrarch. Tetrarch means a ruler of a fourth. So Antipas got a fourth of Herod's kingdom. What fourth did he get? Galilee and Perea. So that's all to the north of Judea. So you see how it is. They're, they're dividing it up. Toward the end of Herod's life, he ordered that a huge golden eagle the symbol of Roman imperialism, be hung of all places over the temple gate in Jerusalem. You know, that did not sit too well with the Jews. It was highly offensive to them. And so, <clears throat> so it was like saying, Rome 
is who you are to worship. You know, we'll put this golden eagle over the doorways that go into your temple. Now Herod had built the temple. You know, this is Herod's temple that we're talking about. But it's supposed to be a place for Jewish worship, for the Jewish faith. And he puts this big golden eagle up there. So, two rabbis, Judas and Matthias, highly revered as experts in the law, encouraged some of their students to scale the gate and remove the golden eagle, which they did. The students were arrested on the spot and sent to Jericho for trial before King Herod. Now Herod is, he's very weak. He's dying. Why didn't he try them in Jerusalem? Uh, well, are you going to try two of the renowned rabbis in Jerusalem? No. He sends them to Jericho, and then he totters down there to adjudicate the case. Well, these students received a mild punishment, you know, for climbing up there and taking down the golden eagle. But Herod had their two teachers executed and given an, a dis honorable burial and then Herod himself died so this, you can see how feeble he is so it's kind of like here's my last act as I rule over the Jews I'm going to kill execute two of their most famous rabbis and teachers well as a result of the execution of the two rabbis an insurrection, you would guess this was coming, an insurrection among the Jews arose in Jerusalem during the Passover celebration. So to squelch the revolt, Archelaus, Herod's son, killed 3,000 Jews in the city of Jerusalem, including the visitors that were from other countries that had come in for Passover. And we're learning here that Archelaus' cruelty mimicked that of his father, in the ninth year of his reign, Judean and Samaritan leaders complained to Rome about Archelaus, Ar Ar and Rome responded by removing his ethnarch position from him in AD 6. And from that time onward, Palestine was ruled by governors appointed directly by the Roman emperor. The most known by us in Christendom, the most understood by us being Pontius Pilate. So here we got Herod the Great, he dies, the sun starts to rule, he's a tyrant. The people complain. Rome removes Archelaus, takes his ethnarchy from him, his governorship, and now Rome, through Caesar, directly appoints governors over this troublesome spot known as Palestine. No wonder then, when Joseph heard He's heading home from Egypt, and he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there. Verse 22. He was afraid because Archelaus practiced the same cruelty and unbridled rage and murder against the citizenry of Judea as his father Herod had done. And if Herod had sought to kill the child Jesus, there was every possibility that Archelaus would do the same if he ever caught wind that Joseph and Mary, along with Jesus, had escaped the purge instigated by Herod in Bethlehem years before. And so Joseph did not want to chance it. 
Now, I've said all that to say this. God's command to Joseph to return to the land of Israel from Egypt left the door open for Joseph's personal concerns and fears. As indicated, Israel was a big place. Joseph was not instructed to return to Bethlehem, per se. Dangerously close, only six miles away from where Archelaus ruled, Jerusalem. His fears were taken into account by God. And we read in verse 22, Having been warned in a dream, Joseph withdrew to the district of Galilee. That's that four-day journey from Galilee to Bethlehem. And he went and lived in the town called Nazareth. The lesson here is that there is often leeway in the commands of God to fulfill the spirit of the law without being shackled to the lever of the law. The other week I referenced Lot living in Sodom with God's messengers arrived at his door to urge him to leave Sodom because the judgment of God was perched to erupt with brimstone and fire upon that wicked city. You remember Lot was kind of dragging his feet. And when he hesitated, the angels had to take him and his wife and his daughters by the hand and compel them to leave the city. And the reason God prevailed upon Lot and his family, Moses says, was that the Lord was merciful to them. Genesis 19, verse 16. But you know, there's more, there's more to the story. The next verse says, as soon as they had brought them out, one of them, one of these angelic messengers said, flee for your lives. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. Genesis 19, verse 17. That's a pretty straightforward command, right? Flee for your lives. Flee to the mountains. Or you're going to be swept away. So there's urgency here, plus what is spelled out is the consequence if you disobey. Go, flee, or you're going to be swept away in, in the judgment. Now listen, however, to Lot's dialogue with the angels. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, uh, uh, here is a small town near enough to run to, and, and it is small. Uh, let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. And he, the angelic messenger, said to him, Very well. Very well. I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. And that is why the town was called Zor. Zor means, in Hebrew, insignificant. It's just a little town. Is it going to interrupt your plans, God, to spare a little town? Can I go to the little town? Do I have to run up into the mountains? And we read, by the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land, so it's now daybreak. Genesis 19, verse 18 through 23, and the next verse talks about God 
opening the heavens and the fire and the brimstone fell. My point is that here again, Lot, like Joseph, was given a clear command by God, in this case, flee to the mountains. But Lot didn't want to flee to the mountains for fear that he wouldn't make it to the mountains in time before the storm of God's judgment fell on the towns of the plains. And so he bargained with God to allow him to flee to the insignificant little town of Zor. Near enough to run to was Lot's words. And God granted his request. Now this is our God, you know. He, he commands us to do certain things that are straightforward commands. But then we raise an objection or we raise a concern. Joseph, now here we're learning from Lot. And God says, okay, granted. If you know anything about Lot's history, this was not a good move. <laughs> this was a terrible move on his part. But he made the proposal and God agreed. Now that brings us to the third point in the outline. God's permission to act differently from his commands ultimately accomplishes his will. There's only one being in the universe that allows you to do things your way and still gets his will done. And it's our God. God told Joseph to gather up his wife and child, Jesus, and return to the land of Israel because Herod was dead and posed no further threat to Jesus' life. Joseph, in characteristic fashion, verse 21, got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. I think he was headed back to Bethlehem, David's town, because by this time he knows that the boy Jesus is Israel's Messiah king. So where do you go with your Messiah king? You head back to within a stone's throw of Jerusalem, the place where the king is going to reign, where he's going to be coronated. But as he crossed the border of Egypt, he entered into the Negev, the southern part of Palestine, and he began to hear accounts of who was now ruling in Palestine since the death of King Herod. And when he confirmed in his mind that it was Archelaus, Herod's wicked son, Joseph was stricken with fear. Verse 22 says, he was afraid to go there. Can't blame him for that. I mean, like father, like son. Joseph knew that Archelaus was not an improvement over King Herod. But unlike Lot, unlike Lot, there is no request made by Joseph to change course. He, as it were, just resigns himself to live with his fears, keep his mouth shut, not alarm Mary, not frighten Jesus with gossip of Archelaus' bloody history. And in his contemplation, he does not have a plan to save himself as Lot did. No, none of that. But God responds just the same. Verse 22. Having been warned in a dream, Joseph withdrew to the district of Galilee. Out, that would be outside of our callous jurisdiction. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled that what was said through the prophets. He, Jesus, will be called a Nazarene. Nazareth is an obscure little town, nowhere mentioned in the Old Testament geography, but fully documented in the New Testament as Jesus' hometown. Not his birth town now, but his, the town where he grew up. 
in our study of Luke chapter 2, describing the birth of Jesus and his presentation at the temple for circumcision and dedication to God's service, you'll recall that Simeon prophesied that Jesus would cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. Luke 2, verse 33. And Anna followed with the praise for having seen the Redeemer. And then we read Luke 2, verse 39. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, that's the circumcision, offering the two pigeons as a, as a sacrifice for Mary's birth, they returned to Galilee to their own hometown of Nazareth. Now, all of this is quite true. But Luke, in his gospel account, leaves out the history of the Magi seeking Christ. He leaves out the history of Joseph being warned to flee to Egypt. He leaves out the history of Herod's killing of all the boy babies in Bethlehem. He leaves out the flight to Egypt. And he leaves out the return from Egypt. That's a lot to leave out. And I understand Luke is on operating under inspiration of the Spirit of God. But all those details were left to Matthew, not Luke. Luke just then, is in this text, Luke 2.39, picks the narrative up again wherein Joseph and Mary, with Jesus, returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Luke 2, verse 39. What I'm thinking here is that Jesus' whole life was mapped out by the prophetic writings of God's Word. Joseph and Mary's travels from conception to birth to flight to Egypt to return to Galilee was all foretold, all documented in God's word. And guess what? They lived out the revelation. They lived out what God said was going to happen in their lives. They didn't always know the verse in scripture in the Old Testament that applied to what was going on in their life. They just listened to the voice of the angel. Do this, do that, do it now. Don't wait, don't hesitate. Now you can come back. They're following God's declared will to them. And they are being blessed and preserved because of it. It's very important that when God grants us the request, when he does, deals with our fears and gives an alternate course of action, in doing all of that, he is exactly accomplishing his Jesus was to be known as a Nazarene. So God has to get the family back to Galilee and in particular to the city of Nazareth. Now let me suggest a couple life lessons here for, from Joseph's return home. Number one, within God's righteous character, that's the emphasis, within his righteous character, the Lord will often give us the secret desires of our hearts. Now, we have in the book of James, if you pray for things that are sinful, James says, don't think you're going to get that from God. So that's why I have it worded this way. Within God's righteous care, if it's a righteous thing that you are seeking, if it's not immoral, if it's not sinful, then the Lord will often give us the secret desires of our hearts. I, th I, I didn't put it in today's sermon, but I was thinking of uh, 
the text where Jesus uh, says to his disciples, you know, uh, if your sons ask you for a fish, uh, will you give them a stone? And, and, and then the point he brings out, if you, being sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, won't your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? That's very important. That's the point of this, of this particular point. If what you're asking for, if what you're seeking for is, um, even though it's a secret desire of your heart, if it's not sinful, God may indeed grant that to you. There is a brand of theologian known as hyper-Calvinist. Hyper meaning above, beyond what Calvin taught. These people are near fatalists, by which I mean they believe that all of life is set by God. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do to change it. What is, is what will be. And what will be was determined by God in eternity past. He set it in con concrete, and neither you nor anyone else can alter it. That's a hyper -cow. And these people have some very bizarre teachings, <clears throat> as you might imagine. One is, there's no need for you and I to pray. Think about this. Why would you pray? When God has ordained to be what is to be, it's fixed, and you praying won't move God to give you an answer that's different than what is set. Sounds like good logic, doesn't it? But are we not told to pray? If any one of you is sick, right, James, he should call for the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Why would we do that? He goes on. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. That's why we do that. The Lord will raise him up, and if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. James 5, verse 14 and 15. So you know what that tells me? That tells me that prayer, rather than being a useless exercise in futility, is actually the means whereby God does heal the sick and does accomplish his will of healing that particular person. Now it's true, we pray, thy will be done. Jesus prayed that in the garden concerning his upcoming crucifixion. Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. But, but if not, okay, thy will be done. That's the way we pray about the sick and a lot of things. All things. But the hyper-Calvinist says, no, praying is useless. It's futile. <laughs> it's fixed in stone. Nothing you can say or do is going to change that. Well, we can show from Scripture that prayer is God's means. That's how he does accomplish the healing of the sick. Oh, here's another one. Hyper-Calvinist says, No one need give a gospel call to sinners to be saved, because if they are not God's elect, whose names are already written in the Lamb's Book of Life, if they are there, they will be saved. If they aren't written down there, you don't. Your witness is not going to affect the, the, the outcome one way or the other. 
But this ignores all those commands to us, in God, to God's people, to what? Proclaim the good news of the gospel. Proclaim Jesus' salvation. Of which Paul says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in, and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? Well, that's good. How can they hear without someone preaching to them, witnessing to them? Romans 10, verse 14. And verse 17 gives Paul's summation. He says, consequently, faith, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. Romans 10, verse 17. You want faith to come to people? They have to hear the word of God. That's the instrument God uses to grant faith, which they don't have, and repentance, which they don't want to do. They have to hear the good news of the gospel. Okay, how is God going to get Joseph, Mary, and Jesus to leave Egypt and settle in Nazareth instead of in Bethlehem? He used Joseph's fear, his concern that King Archelaus would be no more safe to live under than King Herod. How do you know <laughs> that Joseph was afraid? You don't see anywhere that it, it was voiced. Here's how he knew. David set it to music. And he, this is the way, this is the hymn he wrote. He's talking to God and he says, You know, when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Oh, it gets better. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. Psalm 139, verses 2 through 4. Now I'll put it this way. God took note of Joseph's fear of returning to Judea where Herod's wicked son might do to the boy Jesus what his father was unable to do. God used that fear to accomplish his will for Jesus would be known as a Nazarene. God said, go to the land of Israel without specifying. He sees Joseph's fear, sends an angel and instructs him specifically, go to Galilee. So that's our God. Although there are commands that come from God, we're not to be hyper-Calvinists. We're not to say everything is set in concrete and God doesn't take into consideration our desires, our fears, our frustrations, our concerns. No, he does all of those things and when he does them, he accomplishes his will. Only God can do that. Then secondly, when all is said and done, it isn't the political figures of the world who govern our lives, it's God. Boy, I wish we could get that into hearts as Christians today in America. True, sometimes power goes to people's heads. They begin to think of themselves as invincible. More. They think they are right in everything they plan, in everything they do. They won't listen to advisors. They won't heed the counsel of knowledgeable people. If they are the top dog and do not have to answer to another, they just do as they please and let the chips fall where they may, no matter how many people it hurts. Often the legacy left by one such egotist 
is a poor example followed by an equally poor successor. Archelaus was no better than dear old dad. He may have been worse. Killing 3,000 people in Jerusalem, pretty bloody. Even for Herod. In our flesh, in our flesh now, we fear the wicked rulers of the world. ISIS, the Taliban, Hamas, Islamic terrorists, they all strike terror in our hearts on a natural plane. They remind us of Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin from bygone eras. And what we fear is that such rulers have no Christian conscience. They are bloody men who thrive on hatred, murder, and mayhem. And we might be their next victim. That's what we fear. Now we studied through this text today and how wonderfully God threaded the needle for Jesus, his son, between discovery and freedom between assassination and escape, between imprisonment in Egypt and release. There were many attempts on Jesus' life before he himself surrendered his life to the cross. He was in control, not Rome, not Herod, not Archelaus. And he taught us as his disciples. What I tell you in the dark, you speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim it from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There are not two sparrows sold for a penny. And this illustration is Sparrows are cheap on the market. They're, that's because they're su such little value. You can get two for a penny. Yet not one of them, no, these cheap, insignificant, nobody birds, not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of your father. I think about that at times when I'm out driving and see the carnage along the highway, a deer, a skunk, a possum, a squirrel, a bird now and then, and I think about it, not one of these creatures falls to the ground except that my Father in heaven has ordained it. He goes on, and the very hairs of your head, I don't have many anymore, but the very hairs of your head are numbered. Well, what's the point of all this, Jesus? So, don't be afraid. That's the point. You are worth more than many sparrows. And whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. That's the point. See, we can be terrified into not functioning as a Christian. Not witnessing, not praying, not hobnobbing with the unsaved. In all of this, Jesus says, we're to, we're to speak from the rooftop, shout it out, whatever we're told. 
Matthew 10, 27 through 33. David teaches us from his own experience. Listen to David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Oh, okay, good. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me. Even then, I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me upon a high rock. And then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. And at his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Psalm 27, the first six verses. No politician governs your life. God is king. You need to seek him. You need to trust him. Even as Christians, I think we get fearful at times. Well, if you're fearful, pray. Don't worry. Pray. Commit your ways to the Lord. He'll rescue you. Well, yeah, well, I know about the martyrs, and they weren't rescued. Well, then God had a different plan for them, to bring glory to his name through their martyrdom. But he preserved them nonetheless. Paul says, well, i got two choices. I can stay here and be with you Corinthians, which would be good for you. Or I could die and go be with the Lord, and that would be better. See, it's perspective. What's best? To trust the Lord, and he will preserve us. And David writes songs about it. He writes songs about it to remind him that although he had enemies, he had a God who ruled over all the affairs of man. Our Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word. And uh, it reminds us to be faithful. Yes, yeah, even when you allow us to make the decisions in life that we do make, we're to make them for the glory of God. And I pray that we'll do that. And when things look pretty dangerous, pretty scary to us, when, like Joseph, we're full of fear because of the political uh, egotists, and murderers that are in power and authority. Let us also be reminded that it isn't Archelaus and it isn't Herod, it isn't these men that govern the lives of your people, it is you. And we need to understand the same. I pray that you'll quell our fears, calm our hearts, and give us to be trusting people and not to fail 
to testify for the Lord Jesus Christ as though somehow we were ashamed of you. Lord, what you whisper in our ears, what you have convinced us of in our hearts, let us tell to others boldly, fearlessly. And more than that, the word that's given forth in the gospel witness, Lord, touch people's black hearts, sinful hearts, rebellious hearts, and melt those hearts and draw them by faith, bring them by faith to you. Grant them the repentance of their sins that they don't have, don't want, and bring them into your kingdom. You did it for us. We're praying that you'll do it for our family, for our children, our grandchildren, our friends, our acquaintances, our co-workers. And may we be a part of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity.